0: Another day at another go you podcast and uh i'm excited about this one i've been trying to drag him in here we we just had to work our schedules out Uh, i've got is it lieutenant colonel that's right lieutenant colonel adam marksley so i'm excited to have you in blue belt working on purple um i would say are you a two or three stripe i think three stripes yeah i would say you know about to get your fourth stripe and be Purple. so I really enjoy getting to, to train with you. Uh, I really enjoy the fact that one you drill, <laughs> so it's nice if if I'm teaching something for the person to drill it. So uh, just having you in class and getting to know you, we've we've talked a lot at the range, and I don't know you're just kind of an interesting person. So I thought I think the guys would would just kind of be interesting to get to know you. Um, so well, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, glad you're in. So w- with that introduction. Uh, just kind of tell me a little bit
1: about yourself, you know, your family. Uh, what got you to Chattanooga? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, my name's Adam Markley, and I uh, got to Chattanooga. So I, I spent the last 21 years in the Marine Corps and just recently retired uh, about this time last year. And uh, we were down in Tampa. It was our final duty station. And uh wanted to get a little closer to my wife's family, so we moved, uh, moved to Chattanooga. Uh, they live actually a little further north, uh, Kingsport. Um so we moved to Chattanooga. We didn't know anybody.
0: Yeah, what what made you decide? I mean I I've been to Kingsport, so like <laughs> I get the decision. But what made you decide, Chattanooga?
1: Well, we we uh were taking a look around and um we kinda wanted a, a middle market. We'd lived in, in Tampa and then uh which is just a little too big for me. It's just a little hard to get around. It's not my scene, so um uh, looking for a, a you know a mid-sized city where there's still plenty of stuff to do but um you know small enough you get around fairly easily and that led us to kind of knoxville and chattanooga and um when we took a look at it i think knoxville a lot of the uh call it the social scene kind of gravitates around the college yeah and um i like college football but i i went to the university of south carolina so not a huge tennessee fan but uh Uh, If we were going to take advantage of that, I didn't think I think we'd be missing out. So um, looked around and and Chattanooga's got the kind of an outdoor vibe. We like that. So
0: yeah, I spent a year in Knoxville and I had friends go. Oh, there's no way you'll go to Knoxville for a year and not come back a Tennessee fan. I promise you, I easily (laughs) achieved that goal. I liked them a lot less when I got back out of Knoxville. When the bylow was orange, I was like, that's too much for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So. Yeah, I, I think it's a good pick. Knoxville's a weird town because a lot of it feels like a lot of small towns grown together. Yeah. You know, it's like they've got twenty WalMarts because it's twenty small towns just squeezed together. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't think you made a bad choice there.
1: No, we're we're really digging uh, Chattanooga. We're having a good time.
0: Yeah. So tell me about your kids and your wife. Um, Those yeah. are the important things. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, the uh, I got uh, married to Rachel and uh, she's a realtor here in the uh, in the area, in the Chattanooga area. And then I got three boys. Uh, my oldest goes here to Gogi as well. His name's Henry, and um, he's nine. And then I've got two others. I got Xavier and Reed. Uh, Xavier is four, and Reed's three. Okay, and
0: where you, where did you guys settle down? Because I mean, Chattanooga. I can make a lot
1: of things. So yeah, over in East Brainerd. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, um, prior to you talked about your last duty station, let's just talk about your military career. Obviously uh you know we mentioned that you were a lieutenant colonel so it was a, a process to get there uh and let's just start at the beginning what got you into the military what made you decide that that was the path you wanted to take oh man seemed
1: like a good idea at the time the uh so <laughs> um i guess i'd always thought about the military but um as an option for me uh, but Was your family uh, in
0: the military or did you no, have any?
1: No, not at all. I'm the, I'm really the only person that served in the military. I guess my granddad served in World War II. I think like probably a lot of people's granddad my age, but, uh, um, he never talked about it. It wasn't like a, a thing in our family. So I think maybe the military is my former rebellion. Yeah. I don't know, but, uh, it always interested me, I guess. And, and, uh, in the Marine Corps. I don't know if we mentioned that, but should have. We, we have, you know. Look, <laughs> that's one of the reasons that we're. In, I was interested
0: in talking to you. I mean, obviously, I don't know why, but I've got Marines everywhere. Yeah, like all the, you know, Stacy's Marine, uh, and then Lucas still Frenchy. I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere the gym just seems to. You know, I think it is because Stacy was a Marine. He seems to attract. Could be a lot yeah. of Marines. Not that we don't love all the guys and all the branches, but Marines definitely have a special place here at Doge.
1: Well, the uh, the way I got into it was uh, a buddy of mine asked me to go to the recruiter with him. Uh, I had no intention of doing anything with it. I was just there for moral support. And we walked in the door, and uh, the guy introduced himself. The recruiter introduced himself, and and uh, asked me what I you know what I was there for and all that. And I said I'm just here from you know help out my buddy. And um, he kind of gave me one of these like full body glances. And he's like, yeah, I don't think you, I don't think you're right for our organization anyway. And I, and I was hooked, right? Like, yeah, you know, the, <laughs> <Smart guy. laughs> a little bit of reverse psychology was all it took. Get me uh, to get me interested. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, what I did was something a little unorthodox. I went and I enlisted in the, in the Marine Corps and it's a reservist and then went to college. Um, so I did. Boot camp that first summer right out of high school and then uh, immediately went to college, picked up an ROTC scholarship. And when that happens, they won't let you, uh, call it double dipping, right? They won't let you get money from both sides of the house, both uh, like a modified form of the GI Bill and a college scholarship. So they uh, moved me out of the reserves and into the, the officer program. Yeah, I went through college. I got uh, Uncle Sam to pay for college, and on the uh, on the other side, I had a job waiting for me. So,
0: well, that's out smarter than most Marines that I know. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back on it, that was a huge advantage being able to come out of school debt free and have and have a job waiting for me. Though at that time, till my age, but I graduated two thousand and one, and at the time, that was the whole uh, dot com bubble had yet mm-hmm. to burst, and all my friends were getting out of college and and going. For these crazy jobs and and uh and uh, they're like what are you gonna do Why are you wasting your time with a you know government job you can make real money out here in the real world and then like a year later the the bubble burst and they're all looking for work and you know, i had a steady paycheck i felt like a genius
0: but. yeah i came out in like oh four or five and everybody is in real estate and housing and mortgages and they're like what are you wasting your time being a teacher and honestly i was thinking like yeah this little paycheck kind of sucks but then the the bubble burst there, too. Yeah. So, yeah, it made you Pluses and minuses to everything, I suppose. There are. Um, all right, so tell me about – I know officers are different. So, obviously, um, you spend time different places. But what was – initially, you come in as an officer. So, you had a little
1: – Yeah, so Marine Corps is a little different than other services in that they spend uh, – as soon as you, uh, you accept your commission, you go to Officer Candidate uh, School, like a screening process – you make it through that, um, and you get your commission. They immediately send you to a, a school called the Basic School, creative naming in the Marine Corps. But the uh, you go there for six months, and it's just a how to be an officer school. Uh, and they do that regardless of your job or your specialty. Uh, so I was in school with you know, the pilots and the logisticians, everybody else. And when you show up, uh, nobody has a nobody has a specialty. Nothing's guaranteed. And then your specialty is is uh, you kind of. Uh, compete for it with your peers your peer group and uh, based on your your class ranking your lineal ranking you get to choose uh, a job specialty you make a wish list and then compare it against your against your lineal standing and and you get to choose your job i ended up with tanks this is what i wanted is my my first choice so because um, tanks are cool yeah that's kind of ultimate offer of vehicle the giant cannon on it how can you go wrong not
0: a, not a bad choice. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Until uh, you're in that,
1: that thing in the middle of the desert, I'd imagine, but. I mean. Well, yeah. Well, there's the worst places to be. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Inside a giant armored box with a cannon on top. That's, that's probably true. But in my opinion. But the, uh, yeah. So that I got, uh, went through the basic school, came out. Yeah. While I was in basic school is when, uh, 9-11 happened. Right. So, um, I think that made my experience in the Marine Corps over the last 20 years kind of unique, uh kind of grand scheme of things because I I never knew a Marine Corps that wasn't at war. But before us, it was, or before 9-11, budget constraints and everything else made made it a very different experience to be in the military.
0: Let's talk about 9-11 a bit because, I mean, we're very close to the same age. I remember, I think I was coming back from an early class and my roommate was like, hey, get to the dorm, you know, a plane just hit so I remember watching the second plane. But what was it like for you? And obviously you were in a whole lot different situation because I was, you know, in college. And so my buddies were seeing that. Some of them were in reserve. Some of them just left and, and went and signed up. I mean, you know, I, a lot of my friends or guys that I knew, you know, took that as, well, time to leave college and time to sign up for the military.
1: Yeah, well, I was. I was – in the military, right at the beginning yeah, of my journey, there. so I was I was at officer I was at this the basic course is where I was at, and we were we were taking the uh, UCMJ exam, a Uniform Code of Military Justice test, and uh, we got you got done with the test, and you could go back to your, you know, your kind of like a dorm room, you could go back to your dorm room and and kind of wait for the next class to start, and uh, one of the guys that had a TV was like, hey, look at this, and didn't even realize it was real, you know, it looked like a movie. I remember mm-hmm. that feeling like, oh my goodness, this is this is real. And then you know, seeing the second tower get hit, it was just a. It's yeah, it's one of those surreal experiences, right? That that cultural touch point. Or if you're an, if you're an American of a certain age, you knew exactly where you were. At yeah, the, we at the you all experienced that. that. Absolutely, it's 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 amazing to me now that uh, you know there's there's a whole bunch of people out there that didn't experience that right, weren't born yet, or were too young to, to have it really truly sink in. It's just a. Um, yeah, makes you feel old sometimes, I guess.
0: Yeah, just think about the people who've never flown on a plane without TSA, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they think that's just normal. Um, so, I mean, you're in the military, and this happens. And, and to me, it's just really interesting. Like, what was the reaction from from the whole thing? Like, what, what happened immediately? Did they go into – because I know for us, you know, some class – I had class at 6 p.m. that night, and I thought that was funny. But well, I, I imagine – life changes completely on some level when you guys experience that
1: well um, uh, most immediately they locked the bases down all, almost every uh, american base at that point in inside the united states was fairly open you could drive on and off regardless of whether or not you had a military id um as long as you had a valid driver's license things like that had a reason to be there uh that all stopped they showed they locked the bases down and uh life got a little tougher and and, <laughs> and uh so there that was that immediate immediate response to that piece that you just had to had to deal with but then um uh, we were still going through school so we had half of the basic school left and then and then i had to go to in my case i went to the armor officer basic course which is hosted by the army at that time it was at fort Knox. but uh so it was it was going to be in it was another six to nine months before i knew i was going to hit the fleet so um i think it just provided a lot of focus right everything got Really real, all you know, all of a sudden. So, uh, just provided focus to what we were doing because we didn't know what was going to happen next. Uh, almost immediately, you know, I forget what it is. Several days or months, they uh, they did the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, but that was all very special forces driven, and there were some some Marines in that involved with them in the Mew. Uh, but we had no idea at that point that it was going to spill over into Iraq and turn into this whole, you know, multi-decade. Ordeal, yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I remember shock and awe. I was on spring break in Panama City, sitting in a camper watching a thirteen inch TV. <laughs> you know, and I loved every bit of it. Looking back, I'm like, oh, I don't know if that was the best, but at the time we thought it was awesome.
1: So, my yeah, it was my very first appointment was the invasion of Iraq. So, how what was that
0: like? Well, um, I mean, because early on, again, I had friends in early, mid, and then now the guys that I know and train, a lot of those guys came late.
1: Yeah, so the, uh, it's just funny because it's one of those places where you're kind of, you're trapped between technology. Like when we, <laughs> we showed up in the middle of the night in the, in the Kuwait city on air, in an airplane, on a, car, a chartered airplane. So it was like a, like a Delta, like a normal plane. And I, I got to sit in first class, which was pretty awesome. And then uh, it, the you show up in, in Kuwait, grab all of our stuff, and then they just bust us out in the middle of the desert. Like literally there was nothing there, but, uh, you know, the never ending beach. And we threw up little two man tents, and we lived there for a few weeks. And then they slowly built a camp around us, put the giant circus tents up, uh, created a created a whole camp out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we stayed there for a month or so, maybe more, uh, doing some training ops. We were receiving vehicles. We were in tanks, right? So we had to receive these uh, other tanks off of the uh, the maritime prepositioning fleet. They don't you don't take the tanks that you train with in in the United States. They have Vehicles that are pre-positioned around the world that you, that you use that are just for these kind of occasions. So we had to take those off the off the ships and then make sure that they were, um, you know, they work properly and, and all the, tons of work to do. And then the training and all the other stuff we were doing and kind of work up. And then um, eventually it was go time and we uh, we crossed the border. Yeah. Well, and tanks were. I mean, they played a kind of a pivotal role. I mean, it, it just. Yeah, especially they cut through like butter, really. Yeah, especially for the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps only has uh at the time they only had two active active battalion tanks. So a tiny amount in comparison to the army. Uh or for the, for that matter for the, for the Iraqi army. But uh yeah, so um one of the subsets of that is you were always where the the fighting was heaviest because that was you only had a handful of tanks, so they that's where they put them, always in the front. And what model were you guys using? M1A1s. So the, we use the same tank as the army does. Uh, it's it's been modified. Kind of, they all started from the same model, and they've just sort of, you know, over the course of the decades, it's been in service. The Marine Corps variants sort of drifted away, uh, just based off of the kind of the desires of the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps uses tanks more as an infantry support vehicle, as, as opposed to like an anti armor type thing. Yeah. Like what the army kind of focuses on. So slightly different systems, but for you know ninety nine percent, ninety you know some high nineties percent compatible.
0: All right, what were what were your initial impressions in Iraq? Like, what were your initial impressions of of basically just the country as a whole and just the culture? What was it like?
1: Well, that 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 particular that would be a change for me. I've never been in the Middle East.
0: That, that particular
1: deployment, out. we didn't. I didn't interact with with too many Iraqis, especially civilians, because it was it was all all go all the time. Right. We dealt with a whole lot of uh, you know POWs, people that were surrendering. Uh, Young you know young military age males, but that <laughs> that's a pretty specific interaction right that's uh yeah um, we're not rounding dudes up and making sure they don't have weapons or any anything on them and then and then detaining them and sending them on sending them on so I don't know if I'd count that um honestly we didn't uh didn't really know what to expect, so uh you hear rumors and stories and if you're watching it on t v you probably knew more than we did cause yeah. all we knew was what was going on around us and and then the rumor mill that would filter down to us which was Never correct. So, um, yeah, you, uh, that was the kind of the aspect of it. You just didn't know. And we were moving so fast, especially in the in the beginning. I mean, we just didn't sleep. That was the other thing. It was a lot of sleep deprivation. So for us, like uh, my, my battalion, um, our first assignment was we crossed the border in the middle of the night, cut through the desert, and uh, I forget what the name of the interstate was, but the, the interstate that led from Baghdad to Basra. We cut that off in anticipation of a Iraqi division trying to retreat out of Basra back into the deeper into Iraq. Um, That was our job was to stop them from doing that. Uh, It didn't materialize. The guys surrendered in mass for the most part, but uh, that was what we did. And then, uh, so that was a, that was an all night adventure and then all day the next day. And then we immediately turned around and started marching up the interstate towards, towards Baghdad. And we kept going for 48, uh, 36 hours. Yeah. So it was nuts. Like, uh, just the sleep deprivation and stuff like that. As, as a matter of fact, one of the is our sister battalion, first first tank battalion, had a, a tank drive off of a bridge in the middle of the night, killed the crew. Wow. So, wow. Uh, and I I chalk that up to the, just to being sleep deprived and and you know, just not being on your top of your game, made it, made a mistake and cost the whole tank its crew its lives. Yeah, when you're in a,
0: I mean everybody's been there, but imagine being there in an actual tank after. 48 hours when you're nodding off and you can't can't stay awake yeah it was that part was a mess
1: um how long did you stay there for your initial deployment oh i think that one was seven seven or eight months most of them are that but that one wasn't wasn't exceptionally long and we we were there we there we did the invasion um yeah and then we got got all the way to baghdad the uh and then we ended up we stayed there for a few weeks a month, and then we ended up retrograding back to to Kuwait over a period of
0: weeks when in twenty one years i mean you like you said, your career was basically war the entire time i mean it, yes. not basically it was
1: um yeah it's a little different, a from i think what guys are going through now or yeah they did so it. how many deployments did you end up oh like seven or eight yeah I think yeah about seven- you know seven month gigs were uh, they all
0: in Iraq, or did you go both? So Afghanistan
1: State at all? No. So, um, so I did tanks for my I, coming in the Marine Corps. I Did tanks, and and then right about the four year mark. Um, so officers they move every four years. Um, that's just kind of a thing they do in the Marine Corps. So, uh, and and one of the cool things about being in the Marine Corps, at least on the officer side, is you're you're always doing something a little different. There's always different jobs to be doing within the within the Marine Corps. So I started off in tanks first four years and then at that point i was due to due to switch to another job what they call b billets which is you know basically uh, anything that you don't get a job you don't go to job school for like a, like a military specialty so like going to like training at the recruit, recruit de- training recruits at recruit depot or uh, marine security guard or, or these are examples recruiters those are examples of, of b billets um i was coming up on my uh, time to do a b billet and another an organization was being formed called Marine Special Operations Command. So it's brand new. So I uh, I went over there and a uh, brand new organization ultimately uh, ended up taking selection and went to Marine Special Operations after my first four years.
0: That's got to be pretty amazing to be there at the founding of, you know, the Marine Special Operations.
1: Yeah. Looking back on it, it was a, it was a cool opportunity. I, everything's got pluses and minuses, right? So there's, with, with opportunity comes some significant frustrations, but, um, being a new organization, one of the cool parts about it was I was a young captain at the time. And because it was a brand new organization to the Marine Corps, um, you know, your opinion was just as good as anybody else's. Yeah. I mean, the majority of organizations in the Marine Corps have been around for, you know, decades. Um, you know, so they've got all these, all this like history and, and administration and organization built around them. And, and your opportunity to influence is, is fairly limited. Um, but in in Marsoc, because it was brand new at the time, the sky was a limit, and that was really cool. The frustrating part was um, you were constantly changing and trying new things. So uh, the example I'd use is I got put on a, a team that focused on Central Asia and spent, I don't know, 300, 400 hours learning how to speak Russian. I came back from one of my deployments, and they're like, yeah, I don't think we're going to do Central Asia anymore. We're going to go to North Africa. How do you feel about French? <laughs> Oh, awesome, thank you. Yeah, I spent all this time banging my head against the wall trying to learn Russian, and now you want me to learn French. Awesome. So uh, those are the kind of – some of the frustrations you ran into because we were, we were constantly um, you know, trying to figure out what MARSOC was or what it was going to be and how it was going to contribute to the global war on terrorism.
0: What I was going to ask you, what – today, what is MARSOC's mission? Like, what is their – because obviously, you know, you've got SEALs, you've got a lot of special operations, but where does MARSOC fit into the puzzle?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a loaded question. The, uh, so here's my take on it. And uh, if any of my MARSOC buddies are out there hearing this, they, they may have a different opinion. But uh, so I think MARSOC was unique in that as a component of SOCOM, Special Operations Command, it was born in a time of war. And because of that, its primary function was to add capacity. Uh, and what we did uh, over at MARSOC is we, we had the opportunity of coming late, right, to the organization. So we had an opportunity to go look at what everybody else was doing, the SEALs and, and the uh, Special Forces, uh, Green Braves over there in Army, um, and seeing what they were up to and kind of cherry-picking the things that we liked uh, the best and then kind of putting the, the Marine Corps stink on it. And we tailored the Marine Special Operations Company, which is pretty, um, it's pretty awesome. The, uh, and we tailored it to be successful in Afghanistan. So um, it was the Marine Special Operations Company's four special operations team and a whole bunch of enablers. So the Marine Corps, if, if you're not familiar, kind of follows this, mo- this model or mindset of um, creating task-organized organ- teams and organizations uh, at all different levels, all the way up to, you know, brigade size or regiment in the context of the Marine Corps. But uh, – and I guess even up to the core size, but, but down to, we, we took that same mindset and took it all the way down to the company and team level. So we had uh, a tremendous amount of capability. Uh, be able, the main thing that differentiated like a, uh, like a line company from a special operations company was your ability to generate like your own intelligence and then action it, uh, which is, which is not something a normal company can do. So uh, a really cool capability that we developed moving out of Afghanistan when Afghanistan kind of died down, um, the Marine Corps, is, I think is kind of, or at least MARSOC's kind of been in search of a, um, I think purpose is the wrong word, um, a way to differentiate itself from, from the other, uh, from the other components. But I guess I'm of the opinion that it's not, that's not really necessary. Um, we do the same missions as as uh, the SF guys do, and and the SEALs to some contact uh, context. It's all, you know, direct action, support to uh, unconventional warfare, uh, special reconnaissance, uh, various other tasks that, that all of the the components are assigned. So, um, and I, you know, I think I think we do a good job. It, we're the smallest of all the components, uh, roughly three thousand uh, makes up the entire organization, of which eight hundred are operators. So wow, tiny.
0: And it, it makes sense if there's, you know, for for an organization that's developed specifically during a time of war and a specific war, obviously when that war ends, they're going to have an adjustment period where they're looking for yeah. what's next. And that, so that makes perfect sense that they would be in that situation more than others who came beforehand and were a little more established.
1: Yeah, that, and, and because we're so small, right, it's it's so difficult to own a niche. You know, yeah. If you're saying, you know, NSW is focused on maritime operations and, and special operation or special operations focuses on uh, unconventional warfare. The, kind of their their niches, if you will. Um, you know what what can a two th- you know three thousand man organization own in terms of niche? Yeah. And I think you I think you'd be challenged to find one that was globally relevant that the organization is is of right size to handle. So uh, I think. Where we've made our, where we've had the biggest successes, in my opinion, and is, as a part of SOCOM, is is doing what, you know, kind of doing Windows, right? Like doing whatever needs doing, and and you know, I think we do a pretty good job.
0: Yeah, well, it's really interesting to hear. I didn't realize you were there at the at the front end, which I, I find really interesting because I've spent a lot of time in organizations and then trying to either lead within an organization or whole organizations. What's the experience like trying to lead a bunch of Marines? Well, uh, as I imagine there's days that that's awesome, and there's days <laughs> that, that sucks.
1: Well, one of the things that attracted me to special operations is uh, you, you're dealing with a, a high quality individuals, right? Like uh, oftentimes self motivated, you know, uh, physically fit, very uh, very switched on guys. Um, you kind of get into some like I don't know like some cultural turf battles within the Marine Corps with, with MARSOC, because the Marine Corps uh, mentality or stance has always been, there's no special within special, right? The whole, the whole organization of the Marine Corps is, is special all right. all by itself. And I, I do, I, I, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid. I agree with that hundred percent. The, uh, the main difference I, again, my opinion, right? The main difference I'd say between special operations and and say the Marine Corps is your average Marine average Marine serves four years, 75% of the force uh, inside the Marine Corps turns over every four years, which is crazy high turnover, even compared to the other uh, military services. But it's, it's a young, it's a young organization, special operations, uh, average turnover is 13 and a half years. So what that additional time and maturity allows you to do is shove, shove additional job specialties into the same guy, which allows you to operate in smaller teams. So instead of having a, a platoon of, you know, Forty-something guys that can, you know, do multiple tasks—you know, shoot, move, communicate, medicate—you can do that kind of thing uh, with a fourteen-man team.
0: Yeah, I talked to a guy, like former Delta, and that was kind of his same take: was we've been there long enough to have a lot, you yeah. know, just just a lot of money's been put in us, a lot of time's yeah. been put in us, and so you know, anybody would get there, or a certain kind of person would get there over time, but these are the guys that stuck around and. And stayed there and have that knowledge
1: yeah that's that's my experience too i mean that's the primary difference really yeah and uh but i I really enjoyed working with guys um like i said smart dedicated individuals uh yeah i had a lot of fun with it yeah Yeah, and it's funny because every organization you work with will have you they say you're you're 10 right you're 10 percent of your problem children and that was no different in special operations just uh those guys are really good at hiding it, right? They're they're high functioning individuals. So, <laughs> as a as a company commander or a team commander, by the time you get wind of something that's gone sideways, it's that's that's bad. It's really bad. So, um, where when I was in the the fleet, you know, it was you know, guy getting locked up for being drunk and disorderly, or you know, speeding violations, and didn't pay his parking tickets, or I don't know, bought a car that would cost too much that so you couldn't afford, like stuff like that was, was what you're kinda dealing with. And yeah. Maybe some drug issues, stuff like that. But yeah, this just different, you know. Different levels of maturity and, and uh you know what you're what you're working with.
0: Well, and I'd imagine just like I said, different places in life. I mean I Yeah, I get the full gambit depending on, you know, who I'm dealing with here at the gym. So I, I see those different ages and just how you interact with different ages. Um it really plays a huge difference. And just the role that you play to those guys, you know, like if you're dealing with professionals, you're just really a colleague. I mean, you're, you're obviously in charge and and there might be a time that you need to show that you're in charge, but really you don't. Most of the time you just need to treat them like professionals and colleagues. And and then sometimes with the younger ones, it's, it's more daddy or, you know, coach or whatever, you know, to get them moving.
1: Yeah. And there's a method to the madness. Like there's a reason why, uh, military hierarchies are structured the way they are right when you put you know dozens of testosterone fueled young men into a room together and point them towards a like a task right those organizations are time tested probably from you know the beginning of time uh to to allow you to organize in such a way to accomplish things without you know guys killing each other so that uh the the, the, mil- the discipline, the military hierarchy, the structure—it all serves a purpose. You know, and crazy haircuts, like it's—it's it's all there. Um, you may not fully understand or, or um, grasp like why you have to do these these things, but there, there's a method to the madness, and and there's a reason why these these things stick around for you know generations, and and why militaries act the way they do, regardless what, where they at.
0: What kind? I know you initially had training to become an officer, but what kind of training is there for officers as you continue? Do you continue with leadership training or is it just like specific knowledge related to the job that you're getting
1: trained in? Well, so su- surprising a lot of it's on the job training. Um, like I said, you, you, you're constantly doing different jobs. Yeah. Uh, you. Let's see. I got, I got really only got trained in my case a couple of times to do jobs, right? So the first one was when I went to my military specialty of tanks, I went to a specific tank school i will be a tank officer. Did that, and then when I when I transitioned over special operations, went to another special operations school to, to do that. Let's learn how to be a special operations officer. Um, but those were really the only two schools. Like I've I've done all kinds of stuff as a as a marine officer. So uh, one of which was I ended up running a Toys for Tots charity up in Louisville, Kentucky, or near near I was Fort Knox at the time, but Louisville was in my region. Um, nobody. Nobody told me how to run a charity. You know, you just just uh, show up and you figure it out. And you ask people that are that are around you to help you out. That's a big part of it. Big part of the the military, probably Marine Corps experience. Um, but like formalized formalized training. Uh, so you got the basic school at the very beginning, uh, which is cool and unique amongst the the military in that they invest six months of you know paid time, your contract time. Into teaching you how just how to be a basic officer, regardless of regardless of job, specially, and it also allows you to, to understand the core competency of the, of the Marine Corps organization, which is infantry. So that's what they use as the model to teach the course. So you learn how to be a basic uh, infantry officer, but it, that build, it also, in my opinion, builds camaraderie across the entire officer corps. So uh, if you're a pilot dropping bombs from. Ten thousand feet in the air, like you've done enough infantry stuff, you, you feel know, for what, the guy on the ground. Yeah, you know what that guy's going through. Like, um, and you know if you're a logistician, you know exactly what the you know what the infantry guy's up to. So, um, I think that's uh, it's a it's a hefty investment that the Marine Corps makes, but it, it's uh, that was a really cool school. It's it, I think it differentiates our, our officer corps from other services. And we have luxury of being smaller, so we can afford to do that. But uh, so you do that, then you go to your um, your job school. And then typically, uh, by this, when you're a captain, you go to a captain's career course someplace. And that, that's really teaching you how to be a company commander. It's kind of the focus of that course. And then once you're uh, a major, major lieutenant colonel, then you go to uh, command and staff, command and staff college. So kind of a master's level program where they, uh, they're, they're primarily teaching how to be a staff officer. So um, – which is one of the prime, you know, one of the primary functions of officers. Once you get to a, a certain level, is to is to work work and run staffs. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about this, but I do want to
0: hit on it. What what is the typical career path of a of an officer in the Marine Corps? You said they spend very little time, actually.
1: Yeah. So if if you want to if you want to be tactical, right? If you want to do that, enlisted is the way to go because you're going to stay you're going to stay in the trenches doing the thing. Um, Probably 10, 10, 12 years before you get bumped into middle management um, as, a, as a you know, gunner sergeant, master sergeant, maybe longer, The uh, depending on your MOS, but your military especially. Uh, An officer, um, it's not that case at all, right? I think uh, the tactical piece is really seen as, this is again my opinion, really seen as kind of a uh, kind of on-the-job training thing or a... Not, the wrong word like a more like an apprenticeship to give you exposure because the, the majority of your time will be spent on a staff and you need to understand what the tactical is doing to to uh, to plan and, and and organize the operational strategic level so uh, a typical career path you'll spend a year or two if you're lucky as a lieutenant uh, being a platoon commander which is the coolest job ever and then uh, you'll get bumped up you'll be an executive officer for a company uh, which is basically like being a mini staff guy, except you're the only guy. (laughs) Yeah. You do all the work, everything. The company commander doesn't want to do. You do. And you and the first sergeant. So, uh, that the company command or uh, uh, like a company executive officer, then you go away to do your B billet. That's three years. You come back, uh, you do company command. If you're lucky, you get two years. So for those are counting at home, that's maybe four years. If you're lucky as a platoon commander and a company commander being, doing tactical stuff, um, and then uh a typical career path, you'll you'll get in, you'll go away for another B billet, you go back and forth between fleet and these B billets. Do that for three years, you'll come back, you'll be a staff officer. If you're lucky, you're you're an operations officer at a battalion. And then uh you'll go back, do another B billet for three years, come back and you'll be uh uh you'll be a staff officer. But as a lieutenant colonel, if uh, if you're selected, you have the opportunity to command, there's another two years. So out of a successful, you know, twenty Twenty to twenty-five year career, you've probably got six years. You know, as yes, wild being the, tactical, and the rest B of the time billet the is fifty
0: percent of the time. You know what I mean, yeah. or more. Um, you would think B might be like I get that you got to take that, but it seems like you would want to specialize a little more. Uh, so well,
1: yeah, so the Marine Corps treats as officers as generalists, right? They they see you as um, they, you know they've got enlisted guys to be specialists and go deep into subject matter, be subject matter experts. What they want officers to do is be uh, to be leadership, to be middle management, basically. So the, their impression is they they can stick you in your specialty, the one thing that you they taught you to do, but they should be able to stick you in a bunch of different generalized, you know, leadership positions, and you'll you'll function just fine. And the B billets is the that's the how, how the Marine Corps runs, right? That that's you know getting, getting crews, the crammed done nobody wants. wants. That's right. Well, no, nobody wants to do it full time usually, right? So. But it's super important. You got to make Marines. You got to go down to the somebody's got to go down to recruit depot and, and make the Marines. Somebody's got to recruit the Marines out out in the you know the hinterlands of the nation. Somebody's got to do uh, got to go up to the Marine Corps headquarters, Marine Corps, and be on the staff at headquarters, Marine Corps. All, the, all those things that uh, you know Marine Corps counts as B billets. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a big chunk of your career, especially as an officer. It does make sense.
0: Look, I've I've always said in education, it made no sense that they will look who's the best teacher. Let's make him an administrator and that has nothing to do with, you know, it's two completely different skills. And you're not really the administrator needs to understand the classroom, but they have to have a different set of skills. And yeah. that's one of the weaknesses of, of education in general. Um,
1: well, that's one of the things about that kind of drew me to special operations. Cause I, I guess I always consider myself like, uh, kind of like Peter Pan, right? I didn't want to grow up. Yeah. I didn't want to become a staff officer, become a real officer. So, um, uh, what special operations does is it allows you to extend that tactical time a little bit, which is a huge appeal, I think, to probably a lot of my community. So, and, you know, instead of going away um, to a billet, you go back, you go to you go to MARSOC and you, you do another, you do team time, which is basically a, like, platoon commander time again, and then uh, as a captain, and then you get a, you get another bite at the apple uh, to be a company commander as a major. So you're just, uh, you're kind of elongating that tactical time a little bit in that, uh, in that a specific job specialty
0: or a couple we're going to move on but what were a couple highlights just from your time in marsoc a couple things
1: that well when i was stuck a, with you. when i was a team commander we like i said we were on a central asian team i guess one of the like writ large in the marine corps the opportunity to travel and see things like that was that was awesome like i really appreciated that and one of the big things i took away from that looking back on it uh because the marine corps doesn't send you the to tourist destinations, right? right? So, um, was you, you got to see how a probably a majority of the, po- the world's population lives, mm-hmm. and um, and just how lucky you are, like how you won the lottery, just being born in the United States. Um, wow! So uh, that really left an impression on me, um, and I've tried to carry that with me. Right? It's just it's, it's to the gratitude of, of just being born in the united states and all the opportunities that are presented to us but uh yeah as a team commander um i guess as a as a young lieutenant i did the invasion of our of our iraq and then i uh turned right back around and went back to iraq for oif2 Tac 2 where we did the fallujah fight so i was in the, the second fallujah battle that was a that was a nut that was a a mess but uh we did that one then I came back. That's when I went over to MARSOC, uh, did a year of training there, and then ended up uh, deploying with my team several times to Central Asia. Uh, we were chasing drug runners, basically. So the Taliban in, in Afghanistan was, was funding their enterprise through black, heart, black, tar tar, black tar heroin. So we were working with these, all the different stands, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, to try to limit the drug trade that was flowing up through the stands into Russia, ultimately over into Europe. Um, so we did that just chasing drug runners and, and working with the, the local militaries there for uh, a couple of years. And then, uh, get done with that. Uh, another highlight. I came back to Marsoc was a company commander, went to North, went to North Africa and worked on the Libya problem. So this was after the ambassador was killed. Yeah. Uh, this is like a year later. Um, and that was an eye-opening experience because I was at a, I was at a company, special operations company command, probably um, in terms of responsibility, equivalent to a battalion. But it, I don't know, that's not a, that's not a great analogy. That the, the position I was in just opened my eyes to kind of like the strategic level of like things that were going on and and how much like U.S. domestic politics affected international policy. I was very, I guess, I was very naive in thinking, you know, like. When it came to international policy, the United States just sort of aligned itself, and like you know, well, you know, things, I think we've all unfortunately learned lately well, that it's not always the case. No, that's it, not that's not how it works. But I think domestic our domestic politics dominate our international our international policies quite a bit. But but uh, Libya was a hot mess and uh, still is a hot mess. But uh, we were we were trying to find partners to work with the in, the. In, the intent behind the Department of Defense and Special Operations was to build uh, kind of a counterterrorism capability within the within the Libyans. The Libyan had nothing, right? They, when Qaddafi went down, the, the whole he was the entire government. There was no there's no apparatus for us to even rebuild. We had to do everything from scratch. So we were trying to build a, a counterterrorism capability over there, so so that uh, you know we the United States didn't have to go and do that stuff. And it was, it was just a mess um, from Jump Street, trying to find a place to in, in Libya to train, trying to find the right people to train. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of wacky stuff happened. But, uh, yeah, so we, we did. And I had, I had teams deployed all over Africa at the time. So we had guys over in Tunisia that were uh, augmenting embassy security because the situation in Tunisia wasn't, wasn't great at the time. And then, uh, guys down in Burkina Faso working with the, uh, and in, and in Mali to some degree that were working with the French because the, the, uh, Mali incident had gone, uh, the Torgs had, had rebelled and stuff like that. So, uh, and overthrown the Malayan government. We were, we were working down there. And then, uh, where else were we at? Over in Senegal. I had a team over in Senegal working in that area too. So we were all over Africa, um, and in Morocco too. We ended up in Morocco. So, um, just a completely different experience, right? So yeah. these are all. This isn't uh, areas where, um, except for, I guess Libya, the yeah, those those weren't areas where there um, there were not functioning governments. They had functioning governments. So uh, a much different experience in that. You know, a lot of these times you're wearing a suit, shaking hands with with ambassador ambassadorial staff, and and um, working with the State Department because just the unique relationship, how the government is fun is organized itself. The the ambassador owns owns that country right from the from the u s perspective he gets he gets to say what happens and what does not happen in that country and but Department of Defense has all the resources so um if if the State department the ambassador wants to make an impact or an impression he he often has to come to the uh, especially in the area of defense obviously but, uh, he has to come to the Department of Defense and ask for you know to use the resources so it's a one of those unique dichotomies that the government's kind of set up. Maybe maybe it's a check and balance system. I don't know. Yeah, but it might, uh, it might be a good thing,
0: or we might have some private <laughs> wars going on around maybe, the world.
1: Yeah, I don't know. But that's kind of how it played out in my mind. So, um, just uh, just one of those interesting experiences where you got to like got to go to embassies and and work with uh, defense attachés, and and uh, you, know, you have to follow the rule of law in the country, and and understanding that and what your role was and, and how and who you're working with and interacting with partner nations. That was, that was interesting. So I did that as a company commander. And then, uh, uh I guess my went over to Iraq again several years later. Uh, but this time I was, I was actually, <laughs> I was doing my penance. They finally caught up with me I ended up having to do a B billet up at the headquarters Marine Corps as a staff officer, a special operations liaison up there. And, uh, <laughs> so I ended up I snagged a deployment over to Iraq as a as a staff officer and I wound up as the only American in the in Baghdad in the it was called the J seven. It was the, the organization that was focused on training Iraq's Iraqis for the fight in Mosul, if you remember that it was from several years ago. I think it was like thirteen. Yeah. But uh the uh or maybe it's later than that. Anyway, whatever year it was, the 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 Mosul fight. So um, we were training brigades of Iraqis which is uh, a little different so yeah, we, were, we were tasked to train nine brigades in, in I think about a year so there for, for a short period of time there I was the uh, probably the largest arms dealer in the in the Middle East. We were moving humvees, thousands of ak-47s, millions of bullets like, it was you, know, so you guys armor. had to outfit them oh yeah in addition to trying soup to nuts man like we we were creating these uh these brigades from whole cloth only thing the iraqis provided was the was the warm bodies how did those guys hold up uh well like everywhere there were some some that were really good and some of them that were not um some of those guys man wow like we ran into there's some of those battalions that they've been fighting for decades too yeah. right at this point um some of those were some really hard dudes. Like there was uh, one of the company commanders that I met. He'd been he had been shot. Um, he got shot in the thigh, and then like he was on crutches, and he was still observing training with his guys. And then you know, less than six weeks later, he was he was back in combat. So just like tough dudes, and and uh, but there were a lot of them that weren't weren't great either. Um, a lot of them didn't want to be there. It wasn't you know they were. They were all, you know, conscripted. Yeah. So, uh, and and just a very different culture too, um, level of capability, the, the amount of training they received, uh, amount of equipping, and then there's some some significant cultural differences that just made them just made it different than than working with a Western army. So, how did it feel? And I guess most of your
0: time was spent in Africa and Iraq. But what did that? What did that Afghanistan withdrawal look like to you? Hot mess. There's n- there's not been much that's pissed me off more,
1: yeah, than in the military wise than that when I just watched. Yeah, that's is a hot mess. Start hearing, so I don't know, and then you get into the realm of opinion, right? But it is, but that's what this is. The <laughs> it was a hot mess. The uh, I think personal opinion. I'm not sure that Afghanistan ends. A, like ultimately ends a different way. I think you, you, we probably have to withdraw, but I, I, I feel like we could have done it with a heck of a lot more grace, uh, than what ended up happening. So um uh that was that was disappointing to say the least. But
0: uh well it's one of those situations where look, the weapons and stuff lit staying that sucks. That pisses you know, you shouldn't leave your yeah your enemies armed. But what really got me was the the folks that helped and contributed, yeah, and then you ditched them. Absolutely. And, and to me, that's the thing that America's got to be different at
1: than the rest of the world. The weapons matter, certainly, but probably not as much as people think, right? Because it takes a lot to keep weapons, maintain weapon systems, especially the complex ones, aircraft, vehicles, I don't know, stuff like that, like missile systems, like anti-aircraft systems, stuff like that. That takes a significant amount of technological know-how to operate, and it takes a uh, significant amount of know-how and parts to keep running. And then, I mean... Within within less than a decade, most of that stuff will be be junk if it isn't already. And then small arms, you, you can get those anywhere, right? So, um, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. But yeah. uh, but the people, yeah, um, those those people that uh, bet on us and and turned out to be
0: yeah. How was that in Iraq? Look, like, I mean, how are the folks that? Because obviously, there's some folks that don't want you there, but you know, what, what percentage of the population? And I'm sure that changed over the time from the time you got there to the time you
1: left. So I have no idea. But I will say, like, the last deployment I did, I ended up working a lot with the Iraqi leadership, a lot of Iraqi generals, because like, you had to do all the coordination, right? I had to make sure all the bullets and stuff were at a certain location when the, the people were going to show up. And I had to make sure that the trainers were there to train them. Um, the, so I ended up working with the Iraqi generals quite a bit. And I will say, <laughs> I, got, I got some. Interesting stories about those cats. But the uh, uh, I learned fairly quickly that a, an Iraqi general is simultaneously a military person, a businessman, and a politician. Uh, where I was just wearing one hat, right? I'm just doing my job, right? Like I'm, just, I'm a military guy. I got military problems. I'm solving them. So once you started looking at it through that lens, some of the decisions that the Iraqis made, the, the leadership made, made a whole lot more sense to me right because they weren't military solutions like um, a, a quick digression of the story Mike yeah. so uh, I got caught um, so I came this guy came to me and he says uh, or I came to, I came to this this uh, general that I had to had to train because one of my shipments of AK-47s got caught up out of Bulgaria We're buying AKs out of Bulgaria like it was cool. But uh, and it wasn't going to make it to the training on time. So I went to this guy. I said, listen, if you can provide AK-47s along with the, with the trainees, I'll provide everything else. We'll continue the training. And then at the training's complete, by that time the shipment will have showed up. I will give every, I'll give you the brand new AK-47s. And you can go, go to fight in Mosul with the new AK-47s. But I, I need you to help me cover the AKs for training. You think of one thing Iraq would have in spades is AK-47s. <laughs> definitely would but uh uh he's and of course he's like yes my friend we can make this happen so uh a couple of days for training day shows uh comes and a i'm not kidding you a dump truck shows up with the most busted rifles you've ever seen in your life and our so guys were going through them And looking at them, they're like, these are battlefield pickups. They're like, you can tell, like, these are, these are like garbage. They've been welded together. A lot of them are missing stocks. Like, it's just, they're just garbage. So I'm, I'm super pissed. Like, like one job, man, you said you're going to help me out. So I I went to him and I I complained and he's like, oh, I'll look into this. I got fired up and I went to his boss and I complained. Long story short, he got fired and they put a new guy in in his place. The AK-47 showed up, training happened. We moved on with life. Probably about four or five weeks later, I got an intel report that said um, he was a, a, a Sunni general, one of the last Sunni generals in that particular organization. And what had happened was his underlings had set him up to take the fall uh, by making him look bad in front of, the, front of us, front of the Americans, and uh, putting him in a position where I insisted that he get fired – um, so they didn't look bad. They didn't have to fire him. Right. Cause he was, we would have, we would have noticed if he was the last Sunni, the last, uh, Sunni general. So it's a religious dominant denomination. in Islam. Right. Um, that matters to us. Right. We we're trying to make sure they were representative. The military was, and, uh, yeah, they had us do his, or their dirty work for us. I'm like, Oh, okay. So that's what I mean by like, that wasn't a military decision. It was a political one. Um, and they got me to do their dirty work. And, and I learned, fairly quickly right so when things happen you're like mm, these guys aren't dumb um why are they doing this why is this happening like what where's the like where's the angle because it could be it could be uh it could be military it could be political it could be could be a business decision so the, the other thing we were giving them uh first aid kits individual first aid kits every soldier got one they would collect them and sell a certain percentage of them right off the top like some guys were going into combat without equipment and we're like Where's the equipment going? We're giving you, you know, thousands of these things.
0: I've heard some good stories about Ukraine. Boxes of stuff
1: sitting all over the place, yeah, I, it, getting shuffled different places. It happens. I'm Usually sure not the battlefield. Yeah, it, it certainly happened to me. But uh, I don't know. Um, so we did that in in Iraq, and then um, my final deployment it was. I was back with Special Operations. I was working. This is when I was in Tampa, my last duty station, and uh, working central uh, central. Uh, command special operations central command and um i got sent over to yemen and because there was a fellow down there there was a commander down there that was wasn't cutting it so they ended up uh relieving him and and i ended up taking over that organization they're doing some uh work down in yemen so i got to to command the task force down in yemen uh that was really cool that was a that was a neat opportunity now, what kind?
0: I mean, you don't have to get into
1: specifics, but what was happening in Yemen at the time? Or, well, Yemen's uh, Yemen's almost always been a hot mess. Uh, we were down there doing counterterrorism uh, operations. Um, so poorly, <laughs> Yemen's Yemen's kind of like the uh, the Appalachia of the Middle East, if you will. Like, yeah, that makes sense. It's tons. Of, it's it's a mountainous region, and you know, people just want to be left alone doing their own thing, and and. Uh, uh, that's where the shoe bomber was from. If you're if you're familiar, the mm-hmm. dude that got on a plane and tried to have, they had explosives in his shoe and tried to. I
0: appreciate him every time that's I take right. my shoe off through the that's airport. That's
1: right. Um, so uh, there's always been an active cell of Al Qaeda uh, down there, uh, just because it's just poorly governed, ungoverned space. But it, also, there's a civil war happening there, uh, kind of a three way civil war uh, that's happening in the in this at the same time we're hunting terrorists. So. Uh, it was it's a it's a messy place and uh, we were there just to really keep the lid on it and try to and try to figure out you know basically try to keep any of the, the the terrorism from from boiling over to the continental United States or even to the region. So, so all right, you finish your last
0: station and then what's it like transitioning out after twenty one years? And is there a process? I know there's a process, but what's it like from your point of view?
1: Yeah, well, there's a process. The uh, I think the, at least for retirees, I don't know how it is if you just do like, you know, you do four years and, and then and then bounce. But for retirees, there's a fairly, you know, there's a lot of support there to help out. Uh, <laughs> the most kind of complex and, and uh, puzzling part was the Veterans Affairs, the VA process of it all. And that's just because I don't know anything about VA. And I learned very quickly that the VA – and Department of Defense, two separate organizations that don't necessarily – they don't talk to each other. So uh, you basically have to take everything you've ever done in the military and then take, the, take it out of that administrative system and then put it into the VA system. And that it's not its not clearly explained how you do that. So, Wouldn't it make sense if they just put VA under the Department of Defense and then that way it's all the same at every one of them? Or heck, man, like the technology where the computers talk to each other and yeah. all the data – like, hey, you're veterans, right? You – it, clearly the data came from the DOD. Why don't you just have the computers link? I don't know. Like, um, uh, I spent a lot of time maybe I'm talking crazy, but Bro, uh, I moved us from triplicate
0: when I was, you know, in education, I remember moving us off of triplicate. I was like, are we, we can't do this anymore. It's like 2010, <laughs> yes. 2012, like, no more triplicate. Yeah. I to bear down with a carbon paper and you're like, yeah, is this real? Yeah. So, um, you did have some, some services, but, what uh what got you in I know right now you're doing project management for a software company how yeah. did you make the transition from the military and you know end up working for a software company and well, how do you apply those skills i know I know you do but wow
1: well, uh the project management gig just sort of uh that was a, a networking thing right a friend of a friend so uh when we were living down in Florida and uh he he uh he basically he took a chance on me right because i don't uh, I don't know anything about software we do uh, erp enterprise resource planning software uh, and certainly don't have any specialty in that uh but i guess he he looked at me and said hey you got some intangible qualities that we're looking for and and uh and he took a risk on me so um, yeah i've been doing project management for him and for the company Uh, company's called innovate but the uh yeah so in in project management there's not a whole lot i mean it's it's very similar to To staff working in in the military, honestly, the the names change, like the the buzzwords and stuff like that. But the process is all the same, and you know, people are people. So it's working with people. That's not that's not hard. That's what I found.
0: I think I thought when I got out that like the skills I learned in education would be very limited to that. You know, in a lot of cases. And then when I went to
1: other industries,
0: it was all basically the same. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that as you least my experience like moving from industry to industry is you're drinking from the fire hose that first yeah. year probably more if you're uh, you know Well, and smart, i should have
0: said from a leadership perspective because yeah, i've always but, been in those same kind of positions versus i mean if you're in the weeds doing something different yeah and obviously you got to learn
1: terminology and that's really difficult absolutely and and just have know enough about the i mean if you're managing people right if you're managing people and and not things the uh you need to know enough to understand what's happening and what the guys are doing and how, you know, how long something should take and things like that. But, um, you know, it's all, it's not hard. It's just, you, you know, as long as you apply yourself and I, I guess I'd take a look at it as I got a lot of sets and reps doing the leadership stuff. Right. So that comes fairly easy. The time management piece, that's all fairly easy. Uh, which allows me to focus my time on learning the technical stuff. So, yeah, it was
0: a little bit like my transition to fiber. You know, I just I had to walk in there and be in charge and you just got to learn as much as you can and just ask as many questions as you can. Yeah. Just understand that yeah. it's okay if you don't have the answers, especially if you're not. It was different though. Like all right, so you build up 21 years of just very specific knowledge. So I'm sure in your field and your time people would have to come to you to get the information. And now like when you're on the software side, you're never that guy anymore. Like I was in leadership, but also just knew more about the topics than a lot of people. You know, you have that industry specific knowledge. Yeah. It's nice to have, you know what I mean? It makes you feel like one competent and comfortable, but moving away from that and not having that anymore, it does kind of change how you have to lead. And I I think you're never going to be as good in those situations as you are when you're really passionate and understand you know, but for sure you can be very competent and yeah. an expert.
1: I don't disagree, but I, I I think that in a lot of ways, the, the Marine Corps sets you up for success in that model. Cause like I said, we're constantly doing different jobs that you have to learn on the, on the job training for. And very seldom um, was I in a place where I was the smartest guy in the room. Right. Cause you're always surrounded, especially in special operations, like you're surrounded by some really sharp guys. And, and um, if you're, if you're an enlisted guy, like you that's your specialty, right? Like, that's what you do. Um, Heck yeah, you know more about, you know, satellite communication than I do. Like, my job's not to know how to push the buttons and make the thing work when it stops working. My job is to, is to uh, understand how to, how to employ it and when to employ it. So, uh, it's a little different, right? And, And I think that set me up for, I don't know, the idea of you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, right? As long as you can communicate well and and contribute to the organization by you know pointing pointing everybody in the right direction, get everybody row, um, you know, to the same cadence as you go. Like th- that's that's what you're adding to the to the organization. Um, and yeah, subject matter expertise helps a ton. Uh, and the, the smarter you are, the better off you'll be on the subject. But uh, you don't you don't have to be you don't have to have you don't have to be deep. To, to be, to contribute to, to the success of an organization. Sure. So what what got you into jiu-jitsu? <laughs> so um, uh, ever since I was a lieutenant, I've just had this thing where I, I I never really had, like, a hobby I was super passionate about. So I'd, I'd just kind of try other people's hobbies, I guess, would be yeah. the best way to do it. So I'd always uh, – and it just sort of worked out like every time I switched duty stations, which is about every three years, I would just, I'd find somebody that was passionate about something and I would do that, um, with them. So, and, and I've done you know, triathlons and I did boxing for a while and, and just did a bunch of different activities. But when I got to Florida, my last duty station, um, my oldest was, I guess, what was he? He was like five or so. And I wanted to get him involved in something athletic. Um, I was kind of looking around and, and I was talking to some guys and and uh, at, at five years old, right? there's not a whole lot you can get involved with phys- you know physically, but uh, I remember talking to some guys and, and they said, "You know what? I've never met a kid or a person that was a wrestler or uh, like a gymnast that wasn't just a, just a strong dude that had a lot of you know body awareness, proprioception." And I I took that to heart. And so I was looking around, and I didn't really find any, like, you know, traditional wrestling programs for five-year-olds down where we were at. So um, kind of wandered into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. And that particular school, um, they held the adult classes and the children's classes simultaneously. So I was thinking, well, um, I can bring my kid to jiu-jitsu and sit on the bleachers and stare at my phone, or I could, you know, Put some pajamas on and and roll. So, that's how I got started, and and I, I like it more. My kid does, I think. So, I did uh, a little I, bit like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I kind of. I don't know if I planned it. I don't think I did. I I kind of did the same thing. I took my daughter in. And it's like, well, I kind of want to try this too. <laughs> <laughs> and I never left. She was out in a month, but yeah, it just. I don't know that that was why I did it. I think I did it for her, but I was just so interested in it, and I'd always. Man, I, I remember being fifteen and my uncle buying the pay per view, and I thought that was so awesome that I got to watch a live UFC. So I've been hooked since then. I I just always really liked it. I just too poor to get into
1: it until I got a little money of my own. Yeah. So I um I never was into. I did some wrestling in high school, but honestly, that was I had to deal with my dad as long as I was. Uh, I was getting A's and B's in school, and and was playing a sport. He'd help me out with my car, uh, my car payment. So uh, I made sure I had a sport, and winter sport was was wrestling. But I was never passionate about it or very good at it, to be t- tell you the truth. Um, the uh, uh, I came to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu late, uh, but I saw it really as kind of a lifetime sport, a way to stay competitive and active, um, way more so than boxing, which is what I had done when I was up in. DC, the previous duty station, um, you can only get beat about the head and shoulders so much before uh, that starts taking a serious toll on you. So especially when you start late, so and you're 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 always you're always, uh, always facing young kids too. So
0: yeah, those young guys, they don't there's <laughs> no mercy. Yeah. But I mean, I agree with you. Like I love jujitsu because I really do feel like I can do it really close until the end. You know, and I don't yeah. plan on stopping. So like. That's, it's attractive to me to go. Man, I got twenty or thirty more years, which is yeah, that's exciting to me because I'm like, man, how much can I learn in that amount of time? Yeah, I absolutely, it'll be crazy. Yeah, um, it's you know you don't want to be the guy that quits learning, and I'm yeah. always terrified of.
1: And I I that. think that, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, if 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 I was to claim a superpower. Um, I think it would be the, the willingness to try something new. And I think there's so many people out there that just aren't willing, um, to put themselves in a position when they're not the expert or they're not, you know, at least middle of the pack. Like when you put yourself in a situation where you're a brand new guy, like uh, that take, that takes something out of you, right? Like there's a hump, you have to humble yourself and realize, Hey, you know, I'm not the, you know. I'm not the top dog here in this in this setting. I got to figure it out. I got to, you know. I don't know about you, but
0: that was my favorite part. Like, my actually, my favorite part was when nobody knew who I was. And because at my job, I was always out front. And I was always the guy that people had to ask questions to. So, like, middle, like, blue belt, purple belt was really fun for me because I was looking for me. You know, they were looking at Stacy or whatever, and I could just do my thing and. It didn't matter if I was there, if I was, you know, great. But if, if I didn't, if I wasn't there, no big deal. So I really, I enjoyed the anonymity and yeah. the fact that I was a nobody and just getting beat up. I loved it. Yeah. Like that's.
1: There's definitely an appeal to that for sure. Especially if you have a a job or something that. Yeah. Like a is stressful demanding. Yeah.
0: But on the flip side, I, it, it does refine, it makes you a better person or it makes you a stronger person, I think in a lot of ways. But. If you're younger coming to this, man, I think it teaches you a lot of lessons that maybe
1: you and I had to learn the hard way you can learn on the mat, you know. Um, I sure hope so, um, and, and that's what I want for, for my kids, right, At least for them to get those experiences, um, learn learn some of those hard lessons in a controlled environment, vice, you know, having to pay real real costs for them. That's, that's the dream, right, and I think – People use organized sports or, you know, football or whatever your thing was. There's lots of ways to get to the same the same place. But, uh, uh, yeah, jiu-jitsu is uh, – I think there's an, an opportunity there for sure.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, if you're – so, advice. Um, I just think it's interesting. You've been a lot of places. You've done a lot of things. You've led a lot of people. We've got a lot of guys in the, you know, the 20 to 25 range or the 15 to – 25 range or even the 30 range where you're you're still trying to figure out what are you going to do or what do you want to do uh, and I'm not, I would like to hear what are some pathways in the military you think are good options but also just in general what's some good advice for guys um, starting out or looking to make that turn because one of the things you said that I thought was really interesting was the fact that when you didn't have anything you were passionate about you just picked something something somebody else was passionate about that's really good advice. Because I tell people all the time is it's it's the guy sitting on the side that's losing you can be doing almost anything as long as you're doing something you're getting better you're you know you're developing your yeah. you know you're on a path somewhere you know at least you're getting
1: somewhere yeah and and, and don't be afraid to change paths right like absolutely uh, um, yeah like I, I like I said I did I did triathlons for a while and and uh, but I, I don't, don't do them anymore that's and I'm okay with that you know I never I never made a top top tier triathlon and that's yeah. i'm okay but i i had fun i met a lot of cool people had some fun experiences and yeah, and, uh, yeah moved on same thing yeah that's cool the uh young, advice for young people i mean if, if you're looking at the military um i i had a good experience i think it, you know people uh i think you have people have mixed experiences depending on kind of what you bring to it and and uh, kind of the people you hang out with just like everything else right there's good people and bad people in, in the military just like everywhere else so well I think a lot of people when they hear military they think infantry or truck driver what are oh. what are some
0: other what are some things guys can do that you know pretty good option when you get out
1: well I think it depends on no it depends on you know well, obviously aptitude it, it depends on what you want out of your experience I know it, it, I think at least when I was when I was 18 to twenty four years sounded like a long time uh, but Looking back on it, you know, with the the benefit of hindsight, it, it's really not. So, I would say, what are you looking for? What are you looking to get out of your experience? Um, I think the Marine Corps attracts, and its selling point, right? Like what it markets is adventure, right? So, I think the Army, Air Force, and some of the other the military services they mar- they market the kind of the job specialty at angle. Like, hey, you'll learn how to be a mechanic. You'll learn how to work on airplanes. What you know, come come you know, come join us. You'll find a career uh Marine Corps has that too. Um they have everything the army and some some things the air force has. They have their own air wing. But uh, uh what they market the most what they market most is adventure. So you want to travel, you want to see some stuff, you want to, you know, shoot some guns and blow some stuff up, like uh come come hang out with us for a few years. The uh so I think I'd ask first I the question I would ask is what do you what do you want out of the experience? You just want some you want to do something. You want to get out of the small town. You want to go see some something in the world. Go over to Okinawa, Japan, for a few years. Like, what do you what are you looking for? And, and if that's the case, do something that you think is interesting, right? Infantry. Um, and there's there's I don't know. There's tons of specialties. It's basically a giant corporation, right? So infantry is the core competency of of the Marine Corps organization, and everything kind of focuses around that. But they've got an air wing. So if, if you want to be a mechanic, you want to learn how to work on aircraft or helicopters, they've got that. Um, you want to work on trucks, you want to shoot uh, artillery pieces, you want to work on high-end missile systems or shoot those, They got those too. Like, um, uh, they used to have tanks. They've actually gotten rid of tanks, which makes me sad a little that bit. Is, sad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I guess I understand why they did it. I just – uh hurts, hurts my heart a little bit. But uh, – They've got just about everything else. Uh, I think there's forty some odd different uh, specialties that you can choose from, and uh, cooks and everything else. So uh, take a look and see what interests you, um, and then. But but I think if you're joining the Marine Corps, it's it's really about. I, I guess what I would I would say is four years isn't that long. If you're in a position in your life where you need a little extra time to just mature, Marine Corps is a great place. I tell people the Marine Corps is the easiest job you'll ever have. Like get a haircut, do what you're told. Like if if you need a little more time, <laughs> a little more time well, to mature and, and you want to see some stuff and, and uh, before you want to go to school or you want to come back home and, and work at your dad's business, like, um, yeah, go do that. And I will say getting out of the Marine Corps and, uh, like transitioning to civilian life, uh, there's still a network there, right? So, um, you know, you mentioned that you are a marine, and and inevitably somebody else has has been in the Marine Corps, and it doesn't matter if it was you know twenty years or twenty minutes. Like, there is a an instant instant thing to talk about, and and you can start building relationships and building networks that way too. So, uh, regardless of what what you did, I think I do appreciate that uh,
0: networking to me has been maybe the whole key to like my success and i didn't try to i wasn't i wasn't trying to network i just happened to meet good people i liked them i tried to you know if i could help them i'd help them and it's it's paid off a, a lot of different ways a lot of different times so um, i definitely get that aspect of it and marines are kind of the same way as jiu-jitsu like if you do jiu-jitsu or especially if you train at a gogi you know you're not by yourself. You know, like if you might be in a situation, if you see somebody like they got, all right, all right, they got qualifier ears or they got a shirt on they're, I can talk to this guy or this guy gets me. If, if I don't know anybody in the room, there's one guy. And it's probably a lot like that for Marines.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you always get a safety brief before you go out on the weekends. And one of the very first ones I received when I was in the Marine Corps, i was still enlisted was, uh, don't get in trouble out in town. Don't do stupid stuff. But if, but if you get in trouble, don't be by yourself. Like <laughs> that's that was worse than getting in trouble was, was uh, getting in trouble by yourself without you know, your friend's help, without other fellow marines helping you out. So um, just that that mentality and mindset was always there. Um, and you'll you'll make some great friends. Uh, there's an adage: you'll meet the smartest people you've ever met in the world and the, the dumbest people you've ever met in the world in the Marine Corps. And I believe that's true. Like I, you, you know, get, you get the full spectrum. It's a it's a full experience.
0: I believe that might be true as well. All right, last question. Just what are your goals for jiu-jitsu and what are your goals, you know, for your post military time?
1: Well, uh, for jitsu goals. Because I say
0: retirement. I'm not gonna say retirement. You know what I mean? Like it well, you yeah. you had a retirement, you earned it. But yeah, I mean like, you're a young guy, you got a lot of time. I, got, I know you got I got goals. small kids. I can't yeah. I can't retire, retire probably forever until I kill
1: over. Yeah. I'm but to, uh <laughs> no retirement for me. Jiu jitsu goals. So, jiu jitsu goals, um, I guess my primary one is to stay healthy. You know, as as kind of an aging athlete, I don't know, is that a term? Yeah, it's um, a real term, buddy. If it's not, an, it is now. It should be. As an aging athlete, the, the the primary goal is to stay healthy so I can stay on the mat. And for me, that's that's another ego check, right? Because, you know, you should be able to do anything and then the next day you'll be fine, recover. Um, I still think I, I can perform at a fairly high level at this point, but. But the recovery time is just so much longer.
0: Are you on testosterone?
1: No, I'm not. I'm not. Have you gotten checked? No, I. I don't Man, know. I'll tell you for recovery, and,
0: and I harp on it all the time. And people are going to think that roided up, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I literally take the minimum. I mean, I take so much less than everybody because I'm so lazy about taking. I'm so forgetful about taking a shot. But like half a cc a week makes recovery. And and as someone who is. You know, go to the doctor, get diagnosed. You know, yeah. but for real, jujitsu just saps all that testosterone. It's so um, it breaks your body down constantly, and so having that, I used to spend. You know, I train on Monday, recover, recover, recover. Train on Wednesday, recover, recover, recover. Ice bath, Epsom salt, massage, yeah. anything I could to get to Saturday, and I get to Saturday, and it's same thing to get to Monday. Yeah. And three was all I could put out. And, you know, now I'm able to do, you know, five, six a lot of times and I feel a lot better. So well, that's awesome, yeah. Now, did it give did it, did it make me feel like I was twenty five? hundred percent not. Like it's not nearly as good as the those days. But to feel better and to be able to sleep better and just kind of recover better it's been excellent.
1: Yeah, I'll have to look into that cause, uh that that's the biggest challenge right now, I'd say is Journey as an aging athlete is the recovery piece. It just takes so much longer to recover. And, and, again, I sounds like I'm going through the same thing you went through, right? The ice baths, trying to figure it out, the stretching, the uh, just, just trying to figure out whatever I can to, to, to increase the, you know, to decrease the recovery time. The things that
0: work well for me, uh, well, I've always liked Epsom salt and sauna. But, man, really eat a lot of protein, sleep, and make sure you've got testosterone. I was really bad about sleep, really bad about, you know, just skipping meals or not that you can't yeah. skip meals, but just not being, yeah. not having my shit together. Yeah. You know, like just keeping it together and making sure that you, you've you got all your things to keep you on the mat. Because at our age, it just kind of takes that,
1: you know. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely takes more planning, right? It's it's not. <laughs> Drink a case of beer, eat a pizza, show up the next morning, and, and you'll be all right. You can make your way through it. <laughs> well, you it's know, that not for
0: me anymore. You can't, but even these kids, that's why I like jiu-jitsu. You can't have too many real bad habits and still put it out on the mat. You know, even if you're 25, I, I you know, I've watched those guys suffer underneath, <laughs> you know, as I know they had a heavy night of drinking. They're not going to last long. So, yeah. It it does. I think it kind of forces you a little bit, like the military. It it forces you into good habits because if you want to be successful, you just have to have those those positive habits. So uh, I think it's been good. Well, that's cool.
1: I, I think it's one of the reasons I kind of gravitated towards Agogi is is uh, just like minded individuals, right? Like just to, it's a cool organization. It's a lot of a lot of good people, and and um, I think it's yeah. I, I've been around several gyms now, and uh, you get some that are just straight up meatheads, right? that you know guys are trying to rip your head off, rip your arm off. and that ain't that in for me, right? I'm here for for fun. I'm not I know I'm not going to the UFC. Yeah. so this is uh this is a hobby that i'm I'm passionate about, but not uh, uh, not a career choice. So um, coming here and and being able to find you know roles that that are my speed, but uh, but still a very competitive gym, very you know, just a cool atmosphere. Everybody's helpful and, and wants you to get better by by challenging you. That's 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 awesome and and uh, I think I missed that. It's the same. It's a similar kind of atmosphere to being in the in the Marine Corps, being in special operations.
0: It's probably a meritocracy. So, Thinking about, I don't know about you, but I think about this like it's a meritocracy. You know what I mean? Like you get what you put in, and, and it's not necessarily winning and losing. It's the investment in time, the investment in people. Like how much how much you put in is really how much you're going to get out. And I've, I've just really found that the more you get invested in other guys and help the guys that are, are coming up and it makes you better, it builds community, and then, you know, other guys are kind of putting into you. You know, everybody kind of – Yeah, that's a good point. That. Yeah. So. That's cool. Um, any other takeaways or last thoughts, final thoughts before we get on the mat?
1: Uh, I can't think of anything.
0: I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, like I said, we've talked – here and there, you know we talk pretty pretty frequently, but it's always for a minute or two at a time. you yeah. know it's never for an hour and a half or whatever it is that it's been so i've I've really enjoyed it, yeah, and uh it's been fun. hopefully the guys got to know you better and and if you see see him on the map, make sure you give him a fist bump and you know ask a question it's it never hurts and, and again, when you've got guys that have had this experience and you know depending on where you are in your life, you're an idiot if you don't go like. Ask this guy a question, ask him for some advice, or at least just kind of pick his brain on some stuff. If you got some questions,
1: yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions. If anybody has any, that's fine. You can. Um, I feel like I'm fairly approachable. So. Yeah, we'll, uh,
0: one day we'll get videos so that people will know what you look like, but they'll hear your <laughs> voice. They'll know. They'll know you're coming. But uh, we're going to get on the mat. You guys, make sure you do the same, and uh, we'll see you next time.